Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On today's episode, we have a very highly requested topic that surprisingly in all of the, what, 270 plus episodes that we've done at this point, we haven't done a dedicated episode on endometriosis. So on today's episode, endometriosis dietitian Christy Lee is joining me for a conversation all about the endometriosis and IBS connection. We do a breakdown of endometriosis 101, how to know or check in with if it's either endo or quote normal period pain, an overview of the most common treatments for endometriosis and why they don't actually provide long-term success or even pain reduction for most people. And finally, we're talking about how to create a flare management plan, which can be very helpful for endo. And to be honest, this is something that I go through very commonly with all of the clients that I work with who have chronic health conditions and chronic symptoms that they need to manage all the time. Just a quick update with some exciting news before we get started with today's episode. So, Since it's summer, and we know that this can be a really tough time on body image for everybody, we are bringing you more body image-focused content in our weekly episodes this month and a ton of body image-focused bonus content over on our Patreon as well. And even though we're nearing the end of season six of the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, don't worry, we're not going anywhere. We're just going on a summer break for August, and then we'll be back in early September While we're going to be on break, we're going to be dropping content weekly from our body image audit course over on our Patreon throughout all of July and August. Throughout this month in July, you're going to see bonus content like how to get started working on body image, what is body image and why does mine suck, and then also the top four body image myths. So if you are interested in checking any of this out, head over to the show notes and all the links will be there, but it's patreon.com slash wholehearted eating. And a really cool new feature that they just added, if you would like to check out all of our stuff, but you're not ready to join our membership yet, you can also do a week free trial and see what you think. So head on over to patreon.com slash wholehearted eating, and we'll see you over there with a ton of body image content for the summer. Well, Christy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We are super excited to talk about endometriosis because we, while we've touched on endo a couple of different times in different episodes, especially when we're talking about female hormones and gut health and everything like that, we've never done an episode specifically about endometriosis. Um, So we wanted to thank you for coming on because we can't wait to talk about this. Um, But I would love if you could do for our listeners... Maybe people aren't super familiar with endometriosis, or maybe they do, but they're like, I've been, I've been so deep in this for so long. Could you give people a little bit of like an endometriosis 101? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when it comes to endometriosis, it's a really long, scary word. If you've never come across it before, it can feel completely unfamiliar. Where the word actually comes from is it comes from the word endometrium. 
So in a woman's uterus, we have an endometrial lining, and this is the lining that supports the growth of a baby if, it, if an embryo was to implant in the uterus after a successful um, conceptional pregnancy. So the endometrial lining is also what leaves our body. It sheds every month during our menstrual cycle, and that's the menstrual flow or, or period blood that we see coming out through the vagina. So this endometrial lining... There is a type of tissue called endometrial lesions, and these lesions look very similar and they behave very similar to this endometrial lining. And if you are someone who has endometriosis, you can find this endometrial, um, end it's an endometrial-like tissue existing outside of your uterus. So it's, it's quite important to distinguish that it's not the endometrium, it's not the same as that tissue. It's like that tissue because it behaves similar and it looks similar when you look at it um, under a microscope. But this type of tissue behaves very differently outside the uterus. It um, grows and proliferates. It can attach to organs nearby. We, we mostly find it in the pelvis. So it may be on the fallopian tubes, on the ovaries, on the outside of the uterus. And it may travel around to the bowel, the pelvic wall. But we have found endometriosis lesions growing as far as the heart, the lungs, the diaphragm, even the skin and the eye. And there have been some really rare cases of men having endometriosis as well, which is lesser known. So it's important to know that endometriosis isn't exclusive to just women. And this is why I use the more gender inclusive language like people with endometriosis when I speak about the condition. So um, endometriosis, in terms of the symptoms that you might see, you might notice pain, particularly pain around menstruation. You might notice uh, pain that's very deep in the pelvis. It may refer to the back. It may refer down the leg. And you may also experience gastrointestinal changes. So your GI symptoms like bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Um, and you may also experience pain with intercourse or sex as well. So these can be some of the first things that someone may notice. And this can present as early as your very first period, uh, you know, day one, and it's excruciating for you. And for others, the symptoms may present a little bit later in life as well. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a a really good starting place and let me know if you have any more questions about going deeper into that yeah i mean you answered one of the questions i was going to follow up with is like it for i know for a lot of people it can take i think the average is up to like 10 years to get diagnosed with endo um and i think because for a lot of people the pain or the pms extreme pms symptoms that a lot of people have with their periods, it's so normalized that it's like, oh, this is awful, but I just take, you know, anti-inflammatories or I take something for the pain and then, you know, we're all good. But really, <laughs> regardless of whether or not you have endometriosis, you're, that's not all good, right? So how do, how do you know if it's more, um, I don't even want to say normal period pain, even though it is normalized, right? Um, but how do you know, or what are some signs to look for if something uh, related to period pain would be more on the endometriosis th spectrum of things and then maybe how to go about looking for different tests for that to get that confirmed uh, versus let's say more typical period pain that could be associated with maybe hormonal imbalances or PCOS or something else. Mm, it's a really good question. So 
periods are naturally inflammatory events anyway. So to experience some level of pain or change in symptoms can be considered normal. And what this might look or feel like is that on the either the day before or the first day of your period or the second day of your period or all three of those potential days, there may be some change that you notice. So that may be cramping. It may be even things like a, a slight change in stool because we do notice that we can have looser stools around the very earliest part of our period. And this is because when when our hormones shift, so our hormones drop right before the beginning of the menstrual cycle, and this causes the production of something called prostaglandins. These little inflammatory chemicals, they help to shake the uterus and that helps to remove the menstrual flow, but they also shake nearby tissue as well, like the bowel, and so that can cause looser stools. So if you experience symptoms like this, um, pain that doesn't stop you from going to work, doesn't stop you from going to school, going about your daily activities, but it may be a little bit of discomfort for you. And if you can resolve that discomfort with taking just two ibuprofen, for example, every maximum, say, if you're having to take it every four to eight hours, just for a couple of days, that could be considered normal. When it starts to go into the not normal or typical experience of period pain, we would expect that someone experiences pain for either longer, so the duration of that pain, or it may be more intense. So the intensity causes complete disruption to activities that you're trying to do. It may The pain may be so much that you be, you'll be mid-sentence talking to someone and then you have to stop and you, you're sort of like screwing up your face and clenching and holding your belly and, and it's really just like you haven't been able to continue that conversation and then that pain may subside a little bit. Um, it may stop you from being able to attend work to, yeah, even, you know, for the most extreme cases can be that, you might find getting dressed difficult or showering difficult and doing some of those more basic activities in the day. So it can, there's a spectrum that we can expect to see for, from in people. And I, I guess like my, my way of looking at it would be if it's not resolved by just small amounts of anti-inflammatory medication, if it lasts more than two days, and if it's so intense that you can't do normal things, and get on with your day, then that's where I would say that this might be something more. And it might be endometriosis, it might be, it might not be, you know, like you mentioned, PCOS as well, sometimes can experience pain. It's probably less common that we see pain in, in PCOS compared to endo. Um, but a lot of people have difficulty at this point trying to get support. Like you mentioned, diagnosis can take somewhere between seven to 12 years for a lot of people. And the biggest barrier here is that endometriosis, endometriosis is common, but it's not commonly well known, even amongst medical professionals. You would expect that doctors should be across something that affects one in nine or one in 10 people, but it just, it just isn't. So a lot of people go to the doctor at this point to describe their pain and this normalization that you mentioned as well tends to happen like, oh, period pain is normal. Unfortunately, this is just part of being a woman, they may say, uh, you know, um, just keep taking painkillers or try the or try hormonal therapies, things that may just mask it a little bit further without any real follow up of investigation. And 
a big issue that we see here is that not just it's not just an education issue amongst general practitioners, but specialists can be really hard to get into as well. Waiting lists can be long. There's a big cost involved. And the diagnosis for endometriosis at this point in time is still considered to be the laparoscopy surgery as the gold standard method. This is obviously invasive. It has certain risks, waiting lists and things become a problem costs. Uh, we do have some cool new technology that is being looked into coming into the future, which is exciting. So certain ultrasound techniques with experienced sonographers uh, has been proven to be effective at diagnosing endometriosis, but we just aren't there yet with the, we just need more sonographers being trained in this area because it's not widely accessible. So there's hope on the horizon for easier ways to diagnose um, and more research is happening, especially here in Australia, because we have so much funding happening at the moment for endo. Uh, but for now, yeah, this is some of the barriers that people experience. Yeah, it's funny because, or you know, not funny, maybe it just it's like kind of creepy um, with the Instagram algorithm because I'm starting to see more and more clients that do have endometriosis and I'm starting to learn that more and more people in my life do have it. I do not. But I feel like every other Instagram ad that I get now is like endometriosis clinical trials. Want to sign up? I'm like, well, this is cool. Like we need so much more research on endo. Like you were saying, there's not only a lack of knowledge with medical professionals, but then a problem with being able to get into specialists. But it is such a newer field of research because it was not something that was recognized or researched for such a long time. And research takes a long time as well. So it feels like a lot of people who either are finally getting a diagnosis of endo or who had it, you know, maybe a couple of years ago or even before that, it kind of feels like you're just, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And we do know that there's a lot of common co-occurrences um, with other conditions that I definitely want to get into later. Um, but speaking of the different ways to get diagnosed, you mentioned the laparoscopic surgery, and then there's these other kind of clinical trials that are happening. Can you talk a little bit more about the most common, and I'm going to put quotes around this, um, the most common, quote, treatments for endometriosis that people are commonly prescribed or told to go with, and why most of the time they don't provide long-term success or even a lot of pain reduction for most people? Mm. There's three main medical management strategies that doctors will utilize. So the first being uh, hormonal therapies. So this may look like the contraceptive pill, but then we also have some more, uh, I guess we, I don't want to call them more serious or more, more severe, but they are in some ways, but we have certain medications that essentially completely arrest someone's period and induces what we call like a chemical menopause state. It's not something that can be taken for a very long time, but it can put a pause on the hormonal fluctuations that happen during the cycle and therefore this helps to slow down the progression for that time period. It's a bit of a short-term strategy and similar with hormonal contraceptives uh, and you know birth control, the pill, these often tend to be short-term strategies as well because ultimately many people do desire to start a family one day and so at some point they will need to come off that medication and uh, you know attempt for pregnancy and then you know they may look at whether they go back on it later on and maybe I'll just talk to this I'll talk to this group first before I move on to some other treatments but some of the reasons why we might see that these aren't long term or they're not as effective 
it can be different for different people. Some people find the hormonal contraceptive pill to be really effective and they, you know, can't live without it. It's, it's totally changed their experience of their periods of their endometriosis. Their symptoms are dramatically improved. And uh, that's, you know, that about, I would say, I think it, the stat is about two thirds of people do find the contraceptive pill to be really effective. And, and mostly they will use a progesterone only type pill because this helps to balance out some hormones for endo. But about one third of people who take this type of medication can experience a really uncomfortable change in their mood, anxiety and depression. And this is really tough because when you're already experiencing pain and fatigue of endometriosis, you've probably gone through years of being misdiagnosed or not heard. You've been told that you're making things up. It's all in your head. You're crazy. And then you get put on this pill and have a bad reaction to it. You feel more out of control. You feel more out of your own body. You um, are up, you're down, and it's a struggle. And it's also not helping so much with your symptoms as well. So that's a really big, that like one third, that's a really high number of people that don't see success with those types of therapies. Um, and if we're talking more about our menopause-inducing drugs, these are so short-term, like really six months maximum is how long someone can use it for. And you're going to have you know, you're going to have endometriosis for the rest of your life. So it's a really, really short term strategy that is being used. Uh, one of the other types of treatment that's really common is different types of pain medication. So often we're looking at anti-inflammatory medication because this is what's going to help reduce the inflammation that endometriosis can cause in the body. And that can be effective for people However, the big side effect that I talk to a lot of my people on Instagram and, and my clients about is that long-term use of anti-inflammatories, especially in high doses, can cause gut problems, can cause stomach ulcers, it can change the pH of your stomach, and this can lead to other worse conditions like um, having you know co-diagnosis of SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it's, you know, it's kind of a short-term strategy as well. Then the third major strategy that medical management uses is surgery. And this is probably the most common thing that people um, hear about. Not everybody has surgery and you don't have to have surgery if you don't want to, um, but surgery will, will physically remove lesions and adhesions that have developed from the endometriosis in the abdominal cavity and wherever else they find it. And Essentially, this can really help with improving any anatomical or structural changes that have been caused from the tissue. And surgery is really, really important because no amount of medication or diet or lifestyle strategies can remove the fact that your ovaries are stuck to your uterus because there's an endometriosis adhesion that's bridging them together. So surgery will help to remove those structural changes and it also can really help to improve fertility because we may see that there are blockages in the fallopian tubes, so that needs to be cleared. So it's really, really important that um, surgery is considered. However, long-term, we don't always see really great results. Some people report that they can get up to six to seven years before their next surgery, and we typically see this in people who have had an expert excision doctor, um, you know, a surgeon who has performed the surgery. They're very experienced. They know what they're doing and looking for. And they've managed to remove 
most of what they've been able to find because it can be hard to find all the endometriosis and an untrained surgeon in this area won't usually find all of it and they or and or they may use a different technique called ablation which essentially burns the endometriosis it doesn't really dig it out from the roots and so it can grow back and it can cause more scarring with that type of technique uh how so i would say that the majority of people with how they can access a surgeon uh, and being able to afford that surgeon most people are seeing untrained doctors um, or not untrained but I guess less experienced and the techniques aren't as advanced so we see them presenting as early as every you know one to two years needing another surgery again so in terms of that burden of time off work of you know um, yeah the cost involved it's really really not a long-term solution as well so if we can get more doctors trained in excision techniques, this would be really ideal. So each of the, th these are the three major treatments. They all have their, their positives, they all have their negatives, and it's really individualized what's going to work for each person. Yeah. And what, what is just wild to me is when you were talking about um, hormonal birth control, which is, uh, I would say of the three things, probably the most accessible thing for most people, right? Especially because for a lot of people, they can get at least a couple of different uh, hormonal birth control options covered by their insurance, right? So it's going to be the most affordable. But it's crazy to me when you were talking about the other medications that can effectively create an induced menopause state, that one third, so up, you know, up to 33% of those people are going to experience these massive mood swings and then changes and everything. If that, <laughs> like if that was a study or a surgery and it was like, there's a 33% chance that you will have a very negative side effect. Most people would be like, there's no way I'm going to do that. But unfortunately, because endometriosis is such a rough condition condition to have that affects every single day of your life and it's so incredibly painful especially you know depending on how yours presents it could be around ovulation that you have really bad pain it could be around your period that you have really bad pain and it can seem like there are no good solutions within your reach people will take that chance right and i mm -hmm. wanted to talk about also um one of the other reasons that it's so hard to really get a handle on the pain and the symptoms of endo, even if you had had have had the surgery, especially because at least from what I've heard, most of the people in my wide circle that have had the surgery, it's been an ablation, right? And so they've burned mm. off the tissue. It's caused a lot of scarring. It hasn't really caused a ton of reduction in pain, except maybe the first couple of months or something. But I wanted to talk more about the connections between endometriosis and IBS or gut issues, um, because I find that when people are first coming into the endometriosis space, they're like, wait a minute, there's <laughs> there's a gut connection here too? Like, are you kidding me? I'm already in so much pain. And they're wondering why there is that huge connection, uh, um, you know, as opposed to their just quote unquote being those lesions in between whether it's the uterus or the fallopian tubes and the bladder or the gut or anything like that so can you talk about the connections between endometriosis and ibs and what makes it so difficult to treat both of them together mm. and a lot of people will even ask when talking about this topic do i have endo do i have ibs do i have both and something i always like to clarify and you will know this very well that irritable bowel syndrome is really just a, a collection of symptoms that we use to describe something that we don't know what causes it. <laughs> it's a diagnosis based on exclusion 
We don't know what causes IBS. And whilst we also don't know what causes endo, uh, IBS is a collection of symptoms, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, pain, gas, that can present with many different conditions. We see it presenting alongside celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticular disease, other types of um, pelvic conditions and endocrine or hormone disorders as well. So it's, um, and of course, endometriosis. And that overlap of symptoms can mean that people are diagnosed with IBS first because it's more well-known. And then they eventually do discover that they have other symptoms on top of these gut symptoms and, and there may be a diagnosis later on. Um, but to, to bring it back to the connection, so when we look at, we've got two conditions with it, we don't actually know what the causes are, but we see that there are correlations in uh, what we call like hallmark features or things that are commonly present with both conditions. So one of the first ones is that they, um, they both present with inflammation. And so inflammation can cause gut dysfunction because our immune system and our gut are intrinsically connected. Our gut hosts somewhere between 70 to 80% of immune cells. And therefore, if we experience a change in immune function or inflammation, we see gut dysfunction. And then in reverse, if we experience gut dysfunction, maybe there's been overuse of anti-inflammatory medications, uh, you know, poor lifestyle or things like that, that can cause gut dysfunction, can in turn affect the immune system and inflammation as well. So there's a huge connection there with the gut um, and the immune system. And we also see that there are differences in bacterial populations in people with endo, people in IB who have IBS. So the the bacteria or the microbiome that lives in the gut can be disrupted in both conditions. So it's it's a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario, like what's causing what? We don't really quite know exactly where it all begins, but this is helpful for us to, to know. Um, some of the other things is hormone changes. So with endometriosis, we often see either too much estrogen in the body or there could be progesterone resistance. And so this imbalance in the ratio of estrogen to progesterone can cause uh, disruptions in the way that our gut functions. Um, the last one, and the, maybe probably one of the most important ones in my mind, is that nervous system dysfunction is present in both of them. So endo and, and the hormonal changes that are experienced can cause shifts in mood, in um, the way our nervous system functions, and similar with IBS. And so a lot of a lot of studies that have looked at IBS also notice that stress and anxiety are a big part of that story. And a lot of the reason that people experience so much pain in their gut with IBS is because their nervous system is overactive. And similar with endometriosis, when you've lived in pain for so long, you can have an overactive nervous system from that. So these are the, the key things that cross over. And it's while we don't have all the answers, knowing that little bit of information helps us understand that we can actually ma manage both conditions together if we look at those hallmark features and actually address some of those underlying causes. Because you, what I like to say is like hit two birds with one stone, really. If we address gut dysfunction, if we address inflammation in the immune system, we, if we address hormone imbalances and nervous system health, we typically do see that we can improve symptoms of endo and IBS together. 
You just uh, wrapped that up so beautifully because I was about to wrap that up and then lead into the next question, but you already did it for me. So thank you. <laughs> um, but so what I was going to say is, you know, when we're looking at these different areas of managing inflammation and pain, managing gut dysfunction, whether that's due to inflammation, microbiome, microbiome imbalances or changes or shifts, and then the nervous system as well, it looks like we have kind of three, uh, what could be viewed as separate, but very um, kind of conjoined areas that can work very synergistically together when we're looking at approaches and treatments to working with the symptoms of endo. So I just wanted to reiterate for people, even though, you know, Christy and I are both saying there's so much that we don't know, right? And there, on the one hand, promising research is starting to come in and studies are being done and everything like that. But just because there's a lot that we don't know doesn't mean that there's no uh, integrative or functional treatments that we can do outside of these three medical things that Christy already mentioned. Um, so can you talk about some of the most successful ways that you have found when you're working with clients to help them manage your symptoms? And feel free to take that question in whatever direction you want. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> so I typically see two groups of people with endo. One group of people have very few IBS symptoms. And if they do have some gut symptoms, they only really present with their cycles. So they're, what, they're more typical of cyclical symptoms. So they may have period pain and or ovulation pain. They may notice some constipation in their final phase, their luteal phase of the cycle, and then maybe a switch to more looser stools at the beginning of their period. They may experience bloating with their period and or with ovulation as well. So the type of management for someone with cyclical symptoms is different. There's some crossover, but it would look a little bit different to the type of client who has endo plus classic IBS. And, and the difference being is that IBS is a chronic condition. It can present any day of the week. It doesn't have a pattern with, uh, it may exacerbate with the cycle, but someone is struggling day to day with chronic bloating, uh, chronic either constipation, diarrhea, or both. And they notice that, you know, pain and gas and things like that are just problematic all month. So when I'm looking at the person who just has cyclical symptoms that occur, what we need to really address for that person is the underlying reasons for those symptoms. And the two major things that affect this person are hormone imbalances, because we have a cyclical presentation of symptoms uh, and they also experience a lot of inflammation so they're the two key areas that we need to cover and nutrition and lifestyle are some of the best ways to naturally manage these types of things without side effects that we would see in medication um, and then talking to the person who has the IBS plus the endo symptoms we need to add in a little bit more around specific strategies for managing their, um, their food intolerances or gut dysfunction symptoms. And I should actually clarify, with the person who has cyclical symptoms, we also need to look at their gut and improve their gut health because we know gut dysfunction is such a big part of endo as well. But the strategies will look a bit different. We will be looking at improving the microbiome. We're looking at um, essentially how to just optimize the health of their gut and therefore that will have impacts on their immune system and inflammation. Whereas with the IBS case, these people are suffering and struggling so much day to day that we actually need to take a step back before we can dive into those long-term gut health principles and strategies. And a step back, what that looks like is actually 
removing the amount of dysfunction that they have in their gut. And this may look like uh, a type of elimination diet, which might be like a low FODMAP diet, which I prefer to use. And this will help to relieve some of those symptoms that they're experiencing before we can dig deep. And I explained to a lot of my clients that the strategies that you might see in anti-inflammatory eating with improving your gut microbiome would be things like eat more fiber, have more fermented foods, have more plant diversity, do all these wonderful things. But if you said, if you said that to the person with endo and IBS, you would probably just put them into a world of pain <laughs> before they would get a result. And most people are not going to do that. They're already in pain and they're not coming to you to get more pain. <laughs> so the this, this step back is that we actually need to relieve those symptoms first, uncover what is triggering. It's like rather than yeah, we need to actually put out the fire rather than add more fuel to the fire. And then once we have some, um, once we are less fatigued and less in pain and having less gut dysfunction, then we can start to rebuild the gut back up again. And so that strategy will take a little bit longer to do than it would for the, the people with endo who just have cyclical symptoms. Um, so there's lots of crossover there, but strategy can look a little bit different. Yeah, I mean... It's both cases are so complicated in their own ways, right? And it sounds like when things are, or when the symptoms are more cyclical or related to the menstrual cycle, it's like we're trying to do acute care specifically within the problematic times of the month and then more general care for the rest of it. But when you are someone who's dealing with, whether you have endometriosis or not, if you quote, just have IBS or other gut symptoms, like you mentioned, we're trying to relieve the symptoms and then also look for the long-term root causes and solutions that we can deal with. And one of the things that I always reiterate to people, and I know you'll feel the same way, is unless food is the origin of the problem, it can't be the only solution, right? So while eliminating different high FODMAP foods like onions and garlic, let's say, which are two of the most problematic ones, can help relieve some symptoms, onions and garlic aren't how we got here in the first place. So we can't only rely on that to, quote, fix all of the symptoms, which I find when a lot of people are coming from the kind of traditional dieting mentality or if they've been to functional medicine or anything like that, sometimes it really can feel like, oh, I have to stick to this list of foods for, you know, the rest of my life or, you know, a year more plus as long as I have these symptoms. And then it can feel like, oh, well, if I'm not sticking to that food list, then the symptoms are my own fault. And as we had talked about before with the nervous system dysregulation that can happen in both IBS and endometriosis, that's not going to be doing anybody any favors. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I, I think that that's really important to say all of that, that something like the food, uh, like using an elimination diet, like the low FODMAP diet is purely just a tool. And it's something that can create such immediate relief for people who are really, really struggling because dealing with the root cause things, which is that gut dysfunction, nervous system dysfunction, the inflammation doesn't change overnight. It's not something that we can see a big result in immediately. And when you're really struggling, it can be really hard to in the middle of a painful, you know, daily pain and daily gut symptoms to cook, you know, from scratch and to be having more vegetables and, and making these big changes. And so it's important to me that we use it as a tool to relieve people and then they can essentially create more capacity in their life 
to then pick that up and then reinvest that capacity into those strategies. And so it's the step-by-step process is really important. But you mentioned just before about people feeling like they have to stay on this list forever, which is absolutely not the case. And some of the more concerning people that I've heard from are some people who've been following restrictive diets for six plus years and didn't have any clue that we need to re-challenge those foods, we need to personalize the diet. And then more importantly, probably the most underspoken about component is the long-term gut strategies. Because if someone has food intolerances, there's a reason for that. There's something wrong with the gut. It's it's inflamed. There's microbiome imbalances. And it's not until we correct those things that you're going to start to be able to expand the variety of food in your diet again. And, and getting into those root causes is actually what's going to get you that kind of dream you know, existence where you're able to feel good eating food, but also have a variety of food in your diet and not feel restricted, which is so important. Yeah. And I think you do a great job of reiterating that over and over in your Instagram and like all of the marketing things that you do (laughs) is like, yes, the low FODMAP diet or, you know, specific low FODMAP management, depending on, you know, the type of person that you're working with and their history of restriction with food can be a really helpful tool. We're not doing this for a long time because as we will probably get to talking about as well, people who have been on either carbohydrate restricted or FODMAP restricted, fermentable carbohydrate restricted diets for a long time, you can start to see the opposite problem, right? Let's say we're having a lot of symptoms because you have an excess or an abundance of opportunistic, which would be you know colloquially like bad, quote unquote, bacteria that are really not doing your gut any favors. They're causing a lot of fermentation when you eat these certain foods. If you then starve all of our beneficial bacteria of their food source by going too low FODMAP for too long, you can see a lot of the same types of symptoms, which is really, really difficult and uh, hard to explain to people. Also, they're like, well, wait a minute. So you're telling me that too much is bad, but also I shouldn't cut it out completely because too little is bad because that's actually going to make it worse long term. Like, yeah, yeah, we're trying to find that you know sweet spot in the middle. Um, but speaking of gut stuff and nutrient malabsorption and other, you know, conditions that can result as of having endometriosis, a lot of inflammation, nervous system dysregulation, and then gut dysbiosis or dysregulation as well. Do you find that there are um, a couple of different nutrients that are commonly deficient in endometriosis clients or, you know, alternatively, um, do you find that there are some, and I'm going to say nutrients instead of supplements here, because we're, mm-hmm. I know you won't give like a blanket uh, supplement recommendation, but we'll say specific nutrients um, that you find a lot of success with for helping people manage pain and other endo symptoms? Mm, yes, definitely. If we, if we do a blood test, the two, probably the top two things I consistently see in almost everybody with endo is a deficiency in vitamin D and iron. And this makes sense because iron, a lot of people with endo are suffering with really heavy menstrual periods. So we're losing a lot of iron every month. And also iron deficiency is just the most common nutrient deficiency in the world, especially as a menstruator, you're, you know, not only you're you're losing um, iron, but it's also incredibly hard to get enough iron from your diet. It interacts with so many other nutrients um, and, especially if we're starting to eat more plant-based, 
or more anti-inflammatory, then we're going to see a drop in iron intake because we're reducing our red meat intake and other, other types of animal products too. So iron is a huge one. And, and if you are fatigued with endo, correcting your iron deficiency is so important because we could do all of the things around, you know, morning and night wind, you know, wind down and wind up routines. We could talk about regular eating and blood sugar balance. But if you've got an iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia, you're just going to feel so tired. So we need to find out. And right in the beginning of my programs, I get them all to go and do a blood test with their doctor. And I list out all of the things that we'd like to investigate. So iron is number one. Number two, I mentioned, which is vitamin D. And vitamin D is involved in our immune function and it's also involved in mood too. So it's not surprising that we see this low, but I must admit as well, again, our Western lifestyles, our sedentary lifestyles, we are indoors most of the time. And even people in Australia where we have the most incredible amount of sun, uh, we see you know, vitamin D deficiency being so, so, so common over here as well. So again, it's really easy to correct that. It's really easy to identify it on a blood test. Uh, and again, yeah, so important to get that corrected. And, and there was actually an interesting study that looked at vitamin D dosed in really high amounts for managing menstrual pain. And they found that high dose vitamin D helped with menstrual pain too. So there's there's probably a link there. I mean, it's affecting the immune system. I imagine that affects inflammation and therefore pain levels. So really, really cool. Uh, your second part to this question was around, can you remind me what that was? Yeah, so, um, and you kind of mentioned this already with vitamin D and iron, but any other uh, nutrients or maybe herbs or, you know, anything, mm. and again, disclaimer, we're not saying you should go out and take these listeners, mm -hmm. um, work with a qualified practitioner, <laughs> but they should know that at this point. But other nutrients or herbs or any kind of combinations of things that you find a lot of success with for helping managing pain and other endo symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's, uh, it's really important to always have supplements recommended for you, especially because getting the right dose is really important, but also the quality of the supplement or nutrition powder or whatever you're taking is really important. It's it, sometimes what we think is okay. For example, magnesium, I'm going to bring this one up because magnesium is well known for being able to improve cramping and pain. It can also help with sleep. It can help with nervous system and, and stress levels. However, there's lots of different magnesiums on the market. You can find something as heavy as a magnesium oxide, which can be really yucky on the gut and make you feel uncomfortable, can give you loose stools, all the way through to something like magnesium glycinate, which is much better absorbed. You'll, you know, and, and even like I will use magnesium for assisting someone with constipation in a more natural way. Uh, and in other cases, depending on your symptoms, if you're struggling with more stress and sleep issues, then, you know, the type of magnesium will be different again. So that's a, just one of my favorite examples to explain to people the importance of getting your supplements reviewed by a professional and recommended by a professional. But so magnesium is definitely something I love to use. Um, other things that I find extremely beneficial, and I rarely meet someone who meets their omega-3 required intake just through diet. So omega-3 comes up again and again with my clients. If you're not having two to three portions of oily fish per week, which is kind of the minimum that we would want to achieve to help with pain reduction, then we do need to look at using an omega-3 supplement. I would say that in terms of the cost, in terms of accessibility and the taste, not, not everybody likes oily fish in this, the way it's quite smelly. So 
if you're that person, definitely, you know, talk to someone about getting onto a really high quality omega-3. Other, other things that I like to use, it really depends on the symptoms. So if I was to sort of stay in the realm of generally what would work for most people with endo, I would also be looking to a really high quality prenatal or multivitamin. And the reason I say this is because a prenatal or women's multi, for example, will contain a really beautiful suite of B vitamins in there. It will often contain zinc. It will contain some vitamin D. It, if we can even get types of uh, multis that contain polyphenols and other antioxidants like vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin C, these are all really, really beneficial in general for most people with endo because these will help with reducing inflammation, but they also help with uh, nervous system function as well. And when you have endo, there are going to be days where you don't have the energy to cook, you are feeling up and down in your mood, uh, you're feeling overwhelmed, and all of these things can impact your access to food, whether you you know are starting to use a little bit of um, you know take it take take out or um, you've managed to get a little bit of, you know, kind of a balanced plate going on, but you're missing maybe the portion of veggies we need to really get you that anti-inflammatory antioxidant benefit. And so this can just really help to add in maybe what is missing. Um, but again, it's really, I, I find that the, with the multis and the prenatals this is probably one of the most important groups to get well like a recommendation from because not all of these that you'll find over the counter contain activated types of B vitamins um, you will also find that dosages can be really low for certain nutrients. Like they put lots of stuff in there, but it's only one capsule a day. So in terms of the dose that you're getting of zinc, it's so negligible. You're not going to see a benefit from taking that. So yeah, really important to get a high quality one and, and a practitioner recommended product. Yeah, definitely. Well, especially if you go to, you know, any old drugstore or grocery store and you're like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, try this one. I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the U.S., not everything is regulated um, by the Food and Drug Administration. And it sounds like it's the same way over there, too. Um, and especially because there's no way that the FDA could keep up with the amount of supplement brands and companies that are popping up every single day, especially when there are different nutrients that will kind of like have their moment, <laughs> you know. So a while ago, it was like uh, cod liver oil and then fish oil and then probiotics and then vitamin D and now magnesium is kind of having a resurgence. And then I think zinc is like kind of an up and coming nutrient that a lot more people are talking about or like electrolytes. And there's no way that all of this can be regulated. And actually really interesting crossover to another point in my life. I also um, coach swimming and we always have to take these basically drug trainings and stuff like that. And they, of mm -hmm. course, tell you these like scary stories of like national level athletes that will have their urine tested and they're like, oh, I was just taking, you know, B vitamins and they were, but because it was something that they just got at, you know, the drugstore or the grocery store or something, there was some kind of unknown ingredient in there and now they can't compete in their sport anymore. And that's kind of an extreme example, but if you are going to be taking supplements, especially for the purpose of managing different symptoms, you want to make sure you're getting one, what you're recommended, what you're prescribed, and then what you're looking for to help manage that pain, especially. Totally, completely agree. Yeah. Um, okay, so speaking of, um, one of the things that you mentioned, I think a while ago, I went a little deep digging in your Instagram to find this, but <laughs> um, I would love if you could help to, or help the listeners 
if they are people who are dealing with endo or IBS, both or a lot of period pain, let's say, um, coming up with what I like to call with my clients a flare management plan. Yeah. Do you want me to talk about what that looks like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Cool. So one of the, and this is, um, I actually have a, I have a mini course as well as my main program that I do. And this was one of the first things that I wanted to put in that course, because I guess like when someone's first looking for support, it's really important to me that the first thing that they're doing is something that's really actionable, something that's going to relieve symptoms quite quickly. And that way we, as I mentioned before, give that person some capacity, some energy, some brain space back to actually work on some of the more, like the things that work in, at the root cause level and don't create overnight success, but are the bread and butter, most important things to be implementing daily. And like, as you mentioned, a flare protocol. So one, I talk about this around the period, or you can use this around ovulation as well, but around about one week out from your period, you're in your luteal phase. And this can be a time where you may experience some uncomfortable changes in symptoms already before we actually arrive at your period and things really start to flare up. And this time's really key to start really ramping up what you can do to really reduce the intensity and duration of that period flare. Um, but you can also, I guess, I, no, I'm going to talk about it just around the period. So I think I'll just confuse everybody. Um, <laughs> w- when you look at the use of anti-inflammatory medication, we know that this is most beneficial when taken before the inflammation occurs. And a lot of, a lot of people don't realize this because they often wait for the pain to get so bad before they will take some medication to help themselves. And it's because they don't want to overuse anti-inflammatory medication. So I completely understand that. And, and I recommend that people don't overuse it as well. But what we learn from this and know about this is that if we actually implement things before the pain happens, before this flare up is going to occur, we can get well ahead of it and, and have a dramatic difference on someone's experience of their period. So in this time period before, Things that someone can be looking at improving or implementing about their their diet and their lifestyle is anti-inflammatory diet and also looking at other inflammatory things like the type of exercise they're doing, the amount of stress that they're experiencing, uh, even like care duties and things like that. So I'll talk a bit to the foods and things that we can do. So it's really tough to be eating really well all the time you know we're constantly faced with takeaway we're faced with you know social events and all of these things can make it really hard for us to consistently eat well so if all you can affect if all you can realistically do is one week out from your period start to make some shifts and changes like increasing the amount of vegetables colorful foods that you have on your plate so i recommend trying to get it to at least half of your plate being covered in colorful vegetables Uh, looking at snacks and making some switches around for adding in more fruit adding in more nuts and seeds because we get beautiful anti-inflammatory oils from nuts and seeds Uh, even ramping up the amount of fish or seafood that you might plan in that week rather than having as many you know fatty cuts of meat for example so little changes like this can make a big difference probably some of the most influential changes that I've seen my clients make that get incredible results 
is really ramping down the amount of caffeine and alcohol before your period and during your period. That is a huge game changer. And it's probably one of the most difficult ones for people to change because alcohol is so embedded in society as something that we are doing either multiple times per week or binging on the weekend. This is a huge problem here in Australia. I'm sure it's the same in the US. <laughs> um, and caffeine, we're so addicted to caffeine. And, and when you struggle with fatigue, you can fall into this trap of thinking that I need caffeine to, to have energy every day. I can't survive without my caffeine and not realize that actually the way that the caffeine is affecting your adrenal glands, therefore your cortisol and stress levels, it increases pain sensitivity. Uh, and it, it causes more gut dysfunction because it, you know, causes our gut to essentially expel itself. <laughs> um it, there's so many reasons why it doesn't support a body with endo. So really improving on something like that, even just for that week out for the period and then during your period will make a huge difference. And there's so many other things you can do as well by looking at um, types of exercise. So switching out from very high intensity exercise, which is of course wonderful for the body, but it does, you know, exercise will cause inflammation and we just don't want to add more fuel to the fire around this time. So switching to lower intensity exercise, adding in a little bit more mindfulness activities, whether that be walking or meditation or journaling or, you know, kind of just like even booking in for a massage or a facial or something that really gives back to your body and it's kind of a more nurturing time for yourself. Um, and they're probably some of my favorite tips. Yeah, definitely. In case anyone didn't hear, don't do CrossFit when you're leading up to your period. Uh, I mean... The thing I always like to reiterate here too is um, intensity is relative, right? Especially if you are a person um, who isn't a gym person, right? Like you don't enjoy exercise or anything like that. Going for a walk with your dog, if that seems intense for you, then maybe we need to pull back on that for the week before your period. And we focus on more restorative movement, whether that's stretching. I always, now I'm always trying to say stretching instead of yoga because so many of my type A clients, and I'm not saying that all of you are type A, but many of you are, is <laughs> they're like, I hate yoga. I can't do it. I'm like, okay, let's just, let's just try some stretching, right? Like that works too, you know, linking breath to movement can be really helpful. Um, but yeah, all of those tips are great. And I think that, you know, we, we talk a lot about autoimmune disease and I have celiac, so does Christina, my co-host. Um, and we talk frequently, whether we're talking about autoimmune disease or different gut issues or endometriosis, anything like that. It's really, really helpful to have whether you want to call it a flare management plan or like a little bit of a rescue aid or whatever it is for the days when you're not feeling great. Because when you have a chronic illness, like you mentioned way at the beginning of the episode, there are always going to be days where you don't feel great. And that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It's just the way your body is, you know? So I just want to say thank you. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, I was going to add just there. It's so important to have a little rescue kit because it's whilst we can implement so many things to avoid a flare up in the first place, the reality is, is that if you have endometriosis, we, you know, where we are at the moment with medical management without having a cure, there are still going to be those days where you may experience a flare up, you may experience a worse period from time to time and this may happen and you want to have a little rescue kit or I call it like a like a little toolkit that you keep in your handbag or you keep it at home and 
put a couple of things in there that can really help you. They may be a couple of pharmaceutical things. They may be your TENS machine, your hot water bottle. They can be peppermint oil capsules. So looking at like more natural things that you can be adding in as well. And my favorite thing to put in this that I don't think a lot of people think about is actually having your flare management plan written down on a piece of paper and it's inside this little box or it's inside your handbag because one of the challenges people face is that when they are in a flare they're struggling and people around you who love you and care for you they want to help but they don't know how sometimes and it can be a really stressful experience because you're in so much pain that you can't even articulate what you need you don't know what you need you just need help you just need something and then this person saying what do you need how can I help and it's like ah so here open up my little toolkit here's my list (laughs) (laughs) here's my list have a read because you know like the list should really say if I'm experiencing these types of symptoms these these are things that may help me these types of symptoms this may help me and so this person can quickly reference this list and go oh my gosh let's grab this let's try this and you don't need to communicate it so much because it's already on this piece of paper. And I think that that can make a world of difference for people with endo. Definitely. Well, I just wanted to thank you for all of these wonderful tips and all of the information that you've shared with us today. So if people are interested in going to learn more about you, or you mentioned your course, your mini course, your Instagram, everything like that, please tell them everywhere that they can find you. Amazing. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at endometriosis.dietitian. And my main program, it's called Beat the Endo Belly. And this is designed specifically for people with endometriosis who have that chronic IBS symptom as well. So this program is all about reducing period pain, bloating. I call them funky poops, which just collectively describes constipation and diarrhea and fatigue. And this is a six-month framework that I work with my clients uh, inside a group coaching framework. And uh, that's that's my core offer. But as I mentioned before, if you're looking for somewhere to start, something that can feel more introductory, then my mini course is the best place to get started. This is all about, I called it my ultimate anti-inflammatory meal plan for endo. And it's a three-part workshop series with resources. So I take you through building a flare-up management plan and pre-period protocol. I also go through how to start the um, implementation of an anti-inflammatory approach to eating. And then I finish on talking about how to get more organized with anti-inflammatory eating and you get my entire anti-inflammatory meal planner and recipe vault as well. So this can, it sort of takes people on a journey from getting out of that initial flare, learning a bit about anti-inflammatory eating and then feeling more organized in how to actually execute on this and not let, not get overwhelmed because a lot of people can feel overwhelmed by nutrition. So yeah, that's the best place to find me. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Um, And listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Hey, friends, it's Dana. And thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, 
episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com, and we'll see you next week.